Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Um, did you miss the football game this week? Yeah, 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 sad, very sad. But how many out there are Columbus Crew fans, but the crew brought home a championship last night? How many of you watched that? Okay, hey, quite, quite a few of you, seven maybe. <laughs> no, no, that's it's great, great, great for Columbus. Great for Columbus. I was thinking about football teams and what makes up a good football team. And certainly the Buckeyes are a great football team. But a great football team is a lot more than just schemes and great talent, both of which Ohio State have. But equally as important, maybe more important than that, is trust. The coach has to gain trust and the players have to buy in. And that works pretty much everywhere around the world, wherever people gather for some kind of purpose or mission outside themselves. And you think about the cultural moment that we are in right now. Institutions around us are dying slow deaths. Nobody trusts them. Government, military, family, media, academia. Institutional decay has had the result of individualism. We're really, by nature, have become cynics. We don't trust anyone. And every leader is tainted. Every leader is self-serving. And no doubt this has impacted the church, and really, sadly, the church has often deserved the resultant cynicism. You know, the church, for the most part, is a volunteer organization, so even more than its counterparts, the church needs a shared purpose, values, and cohesion, and now more than ever. But those goals can't be accomplished without the exercise of authority from healthy leaders and an all-in attitude from its members. Yet, when we hear that word authority, in this cultural moment, what do we hear when we hear that A word? Our guard rises, our defenses are alerted, Indeed, following someone opens up the possibility of being misled or worse, uh, being vulnerable to abuse. And so with all of these dynamics, cultural dynamics at play, can the church truly operate as God designed it? Is the dream of a healthy, fully functioning church envisioned by the New Testament merely a pipe dream? I don't think so. I think it is possible. And I think the moment that we're in calls us to go back to the blueprint for the local church as described in the New Testament to explore what it says about the health, a kind of healthy leadership that gains trust and a membership that can follow and be all in. You know, when things are easy, when things are easy, all of us are prone to run through the motions, just doing church. Forget why we're doing what we're doing. And in this series, we've tried to give fresh vision. You know, when a group of gathered Christians are spiritually tied to Jesus, when they're balanced by their diversity, when they're led by humble leadership, when they're inspired by a common vision, God can do incredible things, things we never imagined. And that's our goal. It's been our goal. 
to have the Holy Spirit breathe on us fresh vision. And so this morning, I'd like to ask three what I hope to be very relevant questions. And these will be in your, uh, on the screen as we go. Number one, where does biblical authority come from? Since we're dealing with this concept of leadership and authority, where does it come from? Secondly, how does this kingdom authority get to us? And then thirdly, why do church God's way? This is a, certainly a challenging topic, and let's take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to learn this morning. Father, we come before you as a faith community, a community tied to Jesus, whose life is in Jesus. We are in need of your Holy Spirit this morning to learn whatever it is, Father, that you desire us to, to learn. We can be the church. We can be the church that you envisioned, where every gift is honored, every gift is released. Every member fulfills their potential as a member in the kingdom of God. And so lead us powerfully, Holy Spirit, today, revealing Jesus in and through and with us. In his name we pray, for his glory and for our good we pray, amen, amen. All right, gang, you ready? Let's tackle this first question. Where does biblical authority come from? Is there such a thing? Well, there is, and it begins with kingdom authority. Remember, Jesus came on the earth proclaiming the kingdom, setting into motion a new kingdom, not geographical, not physical, but spiritual, a kingdom where he rules and he reigns. Scripture after scripture reinforces that Jesus has all authority. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority has been entrusted to me, and that authority comes from the Father. And Jesus, as the God-man, is uniquely designed to lead us because he's experienced our weakness. He's tasted our limitations. He endured humiliation, yet he prevailed sinless. And he broke the power of death through his resurrection. So therefore, he is the head of the church. And we, his body, are organically a part of him. Like a body attached to a head. Like a branch attached to a tree. We talked about this a few weeks ago, if you remember. Drawing from Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 23. And there, the scripture identifies the church as the primary vehicle through which the authority of Jesus is exercised. To this very day, Jesus continues to gather his church from the place where he sits, at the right hand of the Father. And so on all of this, we see the kingdom authority rest in Jesus as he leads his church. So this leads to our second question, and the one we'll spend most of our time on this morning. How does that kingdom authority actually get to us? Well, big broad answer is, in terms of our relationship to the church, the kingdom authority comes through godly leadership. We see this pattern throughout the New Testament. As the Apostle Paul 
went to new cities in the book of Acts, and he would tell the story of Jesus, and people would respond. Paul would gather them into churches. And then at the appropriate time, he would appoint elders for those churches who would provide ongoing care and teaching and guidance and sustain those churches. Let's look at a couple quick examples. Uh, Acts 14, verses 21 through 24. Here's an early example of Paul on a missionary journey and now returning to places where he had been in these Asian cities. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. Let's look at a second example. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus was a co-worker of Paul. Paul says to him, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul then went on to give Titus actual qualifications for elders. A third example, Acts 20, verse 17. It reads, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Paul had spent three years in this city. It was part of his missionary ventures and church planting adventures. And obviously he proclaimed the kingdom there. And people responded. And he placed them into churches. And then he appointed elders here, evidently, to lead those churches. Now, you're asking a question, perhaps. Who are exactly... I've heard this term before, but what is exactly an elder? Sounds like an older person who's going to boss you around. Or sounds like an older person who looks at you disapprovingly with any slight misbehavior or rowdiness. If that's the case, who wants to be an elder? Well, let's spend just a moment, if we could, on this. And again, let's tease this out a bit. Dig into the scriptures. No doubt the term came from the Old Testament. The early church was made up of Jewish believers, and they borrowed this term from the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we see it developed much further. There are a number of words that are used interchangeably for this office of church leadership, and they give us a peek into the character and the the individual of what an elder is. Stay, if you would, in Acts 20. Look at verse 17. Again, this verse here where Paul says, call for the Ephesian elders, this word elder is a Greek word from which we get the word presbyter. And that speaks to the issue, the term elder speaks to the issue of spiritual maturity. An elder is someone who is older in that sense. Now, it does not speak primarily of physical age, though neither can age be totally discounted since maturity comes so often with life experience. But a presbyter, that word, a Greek word, elder, which we translate it to, speaks, therefore, to a man's character. Now, skip down to verse 28 in Acts chapter 20. 
Verse 28, Paul's now talking to these elders. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now here's another term, different. Now keep in mind, Paul's referring to the same people, but he calls them overseers. This is from the Greek word from which we get episcopal. Now you're saying to yourself, you scratch your head, wait a minute, I've, I've heard these terms before. Uh, sounds like Presbyterians or sounds like Episcopalians. Well, you would be right. And those words are chosen somewhat because they reveal a different way of leading and governing a local church. But here, again, Episcopal sheds more light on this role of leadership in speaking to this individual's authority. He must oversee. He must govern. He must rule. So Episcopal, or overseer, speaks to a man's responsibility. And finally, look at the last part of that verse. He says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. Shepherds. Here's the same group of people, but now a third term. Now, this is a different Greek word. It's pome, meaning, well, to shepherd. Take care of sheep. This describes the scope of the work. It hints at what is needed, such as things like perseverance or tenderness that's required in spiritual leadership. Now, I like what Pastor Alistair Begg said many years ago about this picture of a shepherd. For those of you who know him, I can't emulate the Scottish accent. I wish I could. But I like what he says, but do keep in mind this is a 20-year-old illustration. But I've never heard someone quite say it this way about this aspect of being a shepherd. He says this. He says, think about this for a moment. Of all the pictures and models God could lay a hold of to give you a picture of what it will be like to be a leader of the people of God, here is what it is. It is not a fellow in a pinstriped suit with a briefcase in a tight-rolled umbrella. Again, remember, this is 20 years ago. Not seen too many briefcases around. Nor is it even a fellow running around like a fiend with a whistle around his neck and wearing Adidas tracksuits. Don't see many of them around either. And it is certainly not somebody walking around with big gigantic books and a big egghead dispersing information. But note this, Beg concludes, effective shepherding involves the ability to plan, which is actually a part of the business model. It involves the ability to coach, which is actually a part of the athletic model. It involves the ability to research and teach, which is part of the academic model. But having said all that, all of that is subsumed under this picture of a weather-beaten face with hands that know what it is to be amongst the sheep. And those hands with the fragrance which is the nicest word I can use. There, I wish I had the Scottish accent. That lets people know upon the return of the shepherd just exactly where he's been. Because to be a shepherd demands tenderness, but it also demands firmness. 
It calls for a doggedness in the face of trials. It recognizes that if this task is to be completed, then it is going to take everything in the person. Close quote. It's very insightful. Never quite heard someone articulate it that way. Three words for the same office. Elder, overseer, shepherd. Men of character, men of responsibility, men of love. This is the leadership needed for local churches to be healthy. Okay? Again, we're answering the question, how is the kingdom authority translated to us? It's translated through godly leaders in a local church. Now look at one other thing here. Did you notice every time the word elders was used, it was plural. And you will find this to be the consistent use through the New Testament. It is always the picture painted of New Testament leadership is always a community of leaders, never a single autocratic leader. The local church was never meant to be led or dominated by a single individual. Things like self-glory, the acquisition of power, the narcissistic need to be in the center is a widespread deal. It's in the human heart. Of course, that's the great moral lesson, if you remember, of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And God knew that, and God planned ahead for that in the composition of leadership in the local church. You know, I know from experience that the attention thrown to a spiritual leader, even if he has humble beginnings, the attention can be exhilarating, even addicting. I know what it is, feels like in my heart. I know what it would be like, is what I mean to say, if, it, if I was left only to myself, and it's not pretty. Plurality requires submission. There's another word loaded with cultural baggage. And finding ways to love when you disagree. And along the way, this plan of God builds character and humility in leadership over time and over practice. You know, I wish I could say I woke up humble. Innocent, like Rousseau's innocent native. Oh my goodness, no, I, I woke up very proud. And I've been working on it my entire life. An unhealthy pride and an overseas not need for affirmation didn't suddenly go away when I became a pastor. God continues to chip away at me some 30 years later, and I have needed and continue to need plurality. You know, we've often here at different times articulated how sad and grieving it has been for particularly the last five, seven years, the number of significant, well-known Christian leaders who have failed. And, of course, I don't know every individual situation, but sometimes failure is because of the neglect of this New Testament principle of plurality. Many leaders have failed not because of the sexual lust lying on the surface, but rather what lies underneath. And driving some of that lust is the accumulated pressure 
the accumulated expectations that one leader was never designed to carry. Sexual lust can then be justified via entitlement. I deserve this. Or an affair is, can be an ill-fated attempt to turn off that pressure valve, which is built up beyond capacity. And because of plurality, the church was never meant to be an autocracy. The church was never meant to be an autocracy. And that's a great point, but let me bring the counterpoint as well. It was never meant to be a democracy. The church was never meant to be a democracy, to bring cohesion, to bring direction, to help the church body all row in the same direction. A process is needed for leadership to emerge from the body and then for members to, and then to be affirmed by the body and then for members to be all in. The church is to be led by a humble community of men or what I really I should say, a, a, a community of men aspiring to be humble. Under the headship of Jesus and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and parentheses here, I know that I am not stopping to clarify here why I am just saying men in this context. And yes, we do believe that this position of elder is the one role in the church reserved for men. And I know that that is troubling to some I know it is offensive to some of you here or some listening. You disagree with that. Some of you that have been deeply hurt by men, particularly those intended to protect you, you find this disturbing, disorienting, and obviously it's out of step with our culture. But I can't address this topic today in a way that would give it justice. I'll only add this rejoinder that here we do believe that pursuing input from a diverse group of women is particularly vital for a church that understands New Testament leadership in the way that we do. Women, please hear me. Your gifts and your voice is critical to the life and to the mission of this church. Back to my point on democracy. Some of you may be out there thinking, now wait a minute, Chris. I heard you at our leaders' retreat, and I've heard you many times talk about the priesthood of believers. Aren't we really all equal in Christ? What about the reality that every one of us has the Holy Spirit? We all have spiritual gifts. Are we not all equal under Christ? What gives one Christian, what gives a pastor the right, in light of this, to exercise authority over other Christians? And I want to say that's actually a great question. Because we do value both of these things. Well, the reality is that in some settings, the pastor may not be the most mature person in the gathered church. As a matter of fact, the pastor may not be uh, the most gifted. And indeed, yes, we are all equal under Christ. But the reality is the way that we relate, friends, the foundation of the way we relate is not as pastor and member. That's a role that we play, and it's important when it's needed. But friends, the foundational way that you relate to me and that I relate to you is as brother and sister in Christ. 
as friends in Christ, as co-workers in Christ. That is the foundation of our relationship. That is the way it'll be in eternity. We will all be worshiping together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, indeed, there are times where the role is needed, where I do relate to you as a pastor and you relate to me as a member. And wise pastors and wise members understand this and can move within the nuance of it. So what exists now between us in a pastor-member relationship is not a distinction of value or of worth. It is only a distinction of roles so that there is a way for the church to move forward, to make decisions, to resolve conflicts, to preserve doctrine and core values, and even in some cases when discipline must be exercised. All of this requires, friends, a common understanding and agreement about these areas of authority and leadership. Wow. Now, for some of you that have been here a long time, you've heard these things before. Maybe, maybe some of you have never heard quite this articulated this way. And you might be thinking, Chris, I thought, I thought all that stuff about how you're leading the church and how you're governing the church, I, like, I, I, I thought you guys designed that because it was practical. Or I thought you did it because it was pragmatic or, or it was your particular tradition or, or because you read a bunch of good leadership books. Friends, please hear me. No, 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 and no. We are trying our best to follow the pattern of the New Testament. Now, granted, there are a lot of things the New Testament does not tell us. It doesn't tell us whether or not to own a building. It doesn't tell us uh, how long or what exactly a Sunday service should look like. It doesn't tell us the perfect number of elders or the perfect size for a church or how often take communion. It gives us freedom in those things. Now, indeed, some folks try to make the New Testament give definitive answers on those things, and, and then Often they argue about it and they divide over it to their detriment. But as Pastor Nick shared last week, these are examples of secondary issues. They are disputable matters where we can have different opinions. We can disagree and still be very, very united. At the same time, there are principles of leadership about the function of the church, about how we relate that are quite clear in the New Testament. And these we seek to apply to our 21st century context. We are seeking to build a church the way Jesus envisioned, following the pattern that the apostles set as a foundation. All right. Long time ago, before my multiple rabbit trails, we first asked, where does biblical authority come from? And we established that Jesus is the head of the church. He brings kingdom authority to us. Then we asked, how does this kingdom authority get to us? And we said it comes by the way of godly leaders operating in plurality. All of the character qualifications, all the checks and balances, the requisite humility, the job description, the accountability from the Bible, all of it is designed to create a loving community where there is trust between pastor and member. Leadership can gain the trust of those following, and members can be unreservedly all in. 
This creates not only unity, but synergy. Trust means everything, right, in a friendship, right? Trust means everything in a friendship. Trust means everything in a marriage. Trust means everything in parenting. Trust means everything in a business. And yes, trust means everything in a church. Where there is trust, things can move quickly, moving like a BMW on the Autobahn. But when trust breaks down, the highway becomes a country road, dirt road, rarely maintained. It's filled with potholes, blind turns, dangerous curves, and obstacles that slow you way down. So that's what we've accomplished so far in the understanding of those two questions. Let's now, in just our remaining minutes here, take a turn, make it applicable to us, and I want to point the application here to this question. Why do church God's way? All along this series, we've been sort of getting after this idea that three or four guys can meet at Panera, and that's my church. Or three or four women can, in between uh, tennis, they can meet for a Bible study, and they can say, this is my church. Or the concept that and by the way, we love small groups. By the way, we love all those things. Heck, do those things. Do them. Not discouraging you from doing that at all. But sometimes we think my small group, which is where I relate best, and people are like me, and they support me, and they know me, and relationships are real in my small group. Well, or maybe it's the people you do ministry with and have such a ministry alignment with. Well, is it, it's easy to think, wasn't well, that my church? Why do I need to be accountable to a pastor or to a creed or to a statement of faith? Do you see the line of reasoning? It makes sense, doesn't it? It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? This line of, I mean, have you felt that before? Like, this is my real church. Do you realize that 100 years ago, you would have never thought that? Something's changed in our world. Something's different. There's a you see, this line of reasoning makes sense to you because it matches the spirit of our age. In the spirit of our age, what we do is we pull things out of their historical context and then we redefine them around our needs and conveniences. The culture has done that, for example, with marriage and sexuality. Why not do it with the idea of church as well? You see, the gospel, what the gospel does in every culture, the gospel confronts the primary idol of that culture. And in the U.S. and in the West, this is our idol. The gospel has always confronted the culture's major belief systems that run counter to the truth. And what some have called it today in the West, they've called it expressive individualism. We live in an age where all, uh, author and philosopher Charles Taylor has said is marked by expressive individualism. Now, Pastor Nick has introduced us to this topic on multiple occasions. It is, it is an age, for example, it is an age where the concept of self is totally different. It is an age where a person's identity, how they see themselves, is no longer driven by science or by family or community or responsibilities, but rather by inner feelings. 
authenticity, being true to yourself, regardless of family or community or responsibilities or commitments, is regarded now and seen as the highest good, the only road worth traveling, the Holy Grail. Now, along with this, there is also in expressive individualism, there is also the idolization of the new, the avant-garde, the untried. And in this revolution, tradition, if there is one, is trampled under, not because it's wrong, only because it's old. Yet we would, by, we, would, we would be naive to think that the spirit of the age has not impacted us has not affected us. We're quick to see it out there, but be careful to not miss the log in your own eye. This way of seeing life has been, friends, in the cultural stream for decades. It has altered the way we see, think, and feel about the world and what we define as the good life. It impacts us in the belief that we can define and create church based on our own needs, instincts, our instincts, our intuitions, rather than beginning with what Scripture says. It moves us to replace elder-led communities that can hold us accountable to loose affiliations, where definitions are loose and uh, there is no real authority. Let me give you some examples of this, of how expressive individualism slowly decays authority. And by the way, the culture is, this is why the culture is in many ways is splitting in a thousand different directions. There is no moral cohesive center. And so we see it splitting in a thousand ways. For example, left to ourselves in expressive individualism, we create churches with people just like us. As a matter of fact, the entire design of some churches is to bring people in just like them to only reinforce their cultural view of the world. New Testament churches, and we have looked at this and it's so clear, they were meant to be diverse. In the very first church in Antioch in Acts 13, just look at the leadership team and recognize the diversity in that local church. This is another reason why your small group is not enough. Many of our small groups, you meet with people in similar life station, of similar age, and it's important for you to break out of that in the gathered church. Secondly, left to ourselves in expressive individualism. We adapt, listen, I'll try to explain this, I must be brief, but we adapt the mission of the church. We adapt the mission of the church to the prevailing social agenda of the culture. And thus the mission is constantly changing based on the next big issue that captures the culture's imagination. Now again, hear me out. We must never ignore injustice. And as a church, we must, we must seek to alleviate suffering where we can. Yet the church envisioned by Jesus has as its missional foundation and forefront the gospel. That is our mission. Gospel churches bring together the marriage 
of gospel proclamation and good works, of gospel proclamation and seeking justice, never divorcing one from the other. Thirdly, left to ourselves in our expressive individualism, I can't spend a lot of time on this, but in our expressive individualism, we adapt the beliefs of the church to the ever-changing twists and turns of culture. And we bend our beliefs in order to avoid being seen as regressive, or being seen as oppressive, or being seen as puritanical. What stabilizing force? What is a stabilizing force believer? What stabilizing force is going to help you fight the spirit of this age and preserve the gospel of Jesus? Friends, loose affiliations without authority are incredibly vulnerable. They are incredibly vulnerable to not being able to resist the spirit of this age. Friends, please, we have to rethink and re-engineer our minds. I mentioned early on in the beginning that when we hear the word authority, our, you know, our guards rise, our defenses rise. And we have to go back and look at what the scriptures actually say about the practice of authority. And the Apostle Paul does it so well. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he describes to the Corinthians, he says to them, listen, we're exercising our authority, exercising our authority not to lord it over your faith, but rather we work with you for your joy in order that you may stand firm in your faith. My goodness, Paul was 2,000 years ahead of psychology. Paul was diagnosing codependency back in those days. He got it that if I was dominating, if I was manipulating, if I was authoritarian, you're going to end up being dependent on me and not Jesus. And you won't be able to stand firm in your faith. No, authority does not seek control. Authority doesn't seek to be put in the middle like the sun with everyone else orbiting around you. No, authority, true authority, biblical authority, works for the good of those entrusted to serve. It works for their joy, their progress, to be able to stand firm, to be a man, to be a woman. Paul understood interdependence. His goal was not to make them independent, off on their own. His goal was not to make them dependent, dependent on him. His goal was to make them intradependent, dependent on God, healthy dependence on others, involved in the community, but primarily connected to God himself. That's the vision Paul had. That's the vision for healthy biblical authority. And under it, friends, under it, Christians should be able to thrive and flourish and use their gifts and be used in the kingdom and become the men and women of God they were designed to be. Outside of it, outside of that protection, outside of that greenhouse effect that the church has, Christians are left to fight for themselves. They're left to resist the spirit of the age on their own. And my friends, it's not a safe place to be. One point I should make here is that that stabilizing force is spiritual communities, it's churches with healthy godly leadership where the Bible is brought to bear on the body 
This is how leaders learn to lead through the Bible. And the Bible is brought to bear on, the, on leaders and the body. And collectively, we recognize its, thar- its authority and we yield to this text. The very words of God. Not a law detached from God. Sometimes we think this book is somehow a law that is detached from God. No. This flows from his heart. This flows from him. This reveals who he is. This brings us into relationship with him. Finally, finally, let me just wrap up by saying one last thing. And I just want to bring this really home to us now as we go through a very difficult testing time. You know, our view of authority has been tested recently, right? The elders here, eight of us, have had to make some very difficult decisions and some that you have not preferred or you have not agreed with. And, and listen, again, to not what I just say, but listen to what God says. When God says to honor those, to regard those, to value those in authority, whether it's the church or whether it's the government or the place of your work, and you know our tradition here, our way of, of exercising authority here. We have never been about just be quiet and fall in line. Don't ask your questions. Just fall in line. We've never been that way. That's not the way of Jesus as I understand it. And it's not the way that we have, we have been. And really, unlike Jesus, we are fallible. But the reality is at some point, right, decisions have to be made. At some point, we've got to move forward, even if the decisions are less than perfect. If we're going to be cohesive, if we're going to stay together, sometimes decisions have whether we agree to it or not. And I think one appeal that I would make to you, if it's been an uncomfortable time for you, here's one appeal I would make to you. Keep in mind that when you are in charge of something, or even more particularly, when you are in charge of someone, when you have authority for human beings, it changes your view of things, doesn't it? It changes. You see the world differently when you're the one in charge, when you have authority. Every parent knows this. Every teacher knows this. Every high school and college administrator knows this. Every supervisor, every boss knows this. When you're in charge, you see things differently. So, before you think about complaining to the, about the governor, or before you think about complaining here, though I shouldn't, I don't even want to say the word complaining, but as you think about the decisions we must make, as you think about the decisions the governor must make, please keep in mind that we and they do see the world differently because we are held accountable. And when you're held accountable, you must navigate through the reality that you are living under a higher standard. So again, hear me. If you're not liking where we're going, if you don't like the decisions we made, tell us. Let's talk. Let's certainly talk. But we also want you to realize that, that we may see things a little differently than you because ultimately we must talk to God about it. 
God's going to have a talk with us at some point about the way we led this church because we're accountable ultimately to him. Last thing, we, of course, all come equally before the cross as sinners, right? Getting back to who we are first, not pastor, not members, but brothers and sisters in Christ. As fellow sinners, we all come before the cross together. And I think it's good to keep in mind that as we view our eternal destiny together, as we view where we'll be together sometime not long from now, if you realize that time is fairly relative, the time is near where we'll all be together, worshiping Jesus, not as pastor member, as brothers and sisters, as friends in Christ. I think if we keep that eternal destiny in mind, it's going to get help, help us get through some of the relational landmines that we experience today. Amen? Amen. Let's just stand. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray that you'd take these truths about your church and our hearts and you'd help us to wrestle with them and to bring them into a deeper conviction in our hearts. And Father, open the door for conversation and discussion on these things. They certainly aren't easy. Do thank you for the ways... Lord, the many, many ways you have knit our hearts together and connected our hearts together as a body. And Lord, certainly, the oneness and the unity we experience, so much of that has become richer and deeper in the last eight to nine months, and we thank you for that. We thank you for it. And yet we, we want it to be even all the more pervasive and all the more running through every fabric and every segment and every crevice of our church. So we, we pray, Jesus, you'd bring your oneness to us as we learn and grow together in a difficult, challenging time. We pray all this in your Son's name that we together, collectively, worship as the worthy one. We pray in his name, and we thank you for his atoning sacrifice. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're just, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Thanks for sticking with me. A little longer message than usual, but some things we certainly wanted to say and wanted to address. Hey, keep in mind that um, uh, we have, uh, some of you had asked about, again, the offering. Um, you can continue to give online. As Nick mentioned, it's on our website. It's a drop-down box for our Sunday morning general offering. There's also a couple of boxes in the lobby. So again, we appreciate how you've given, the way you've stood with us through this time, and want to encourage you to continue to do so. And lastly, uh, encourage you to pick up the book, The Devotional on Proverbs. Rich, uh, or one of his friends, will be in the missions area selling those as soon as we're done. So, you raise your hands for a final blessing. Now may the love of God, may our connectedness with the Holy Spirit, and may the grace of of Jesus be with you. Amen. 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 Go in peace.